I'm Emily Kate, and this is We the Voters. Hi, and welcome to Episode 7 of the We the Voters podcast. We the Voters is a podcast where I take hot topics in U.S. culture and break them down from opposite opinions. I'm your host, Emily Kate Topchesky. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief at We the Voters, which is basically a fancy way of saying that this project is just me, so I wear a lot of hats. I'm a podcaster, editor, producer, writer, filmmaker, photographer, web designer, travel coordinator, social media manager, and the list goes on. We the Voters began in 2019 when I set off on the road to understand the many ways U.S. citizens are more alike than different. This podcast is my next step in bridging the ways we listen and talk about the other side, no matter what side you're on. So if you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss a heated topic in U.S. culture, gun control. In recent decades, gun rights, gun control, and the Second Amendment have sparked intense debates. Big questions are being asked. What and how much does the Second Amendment cover? Should new gun control laws be enacted for public safety? Do gun rights make communities more or less safe? In the next hour, I'll walk you through each of these questions, taking myths apart and finding the facts. We'll take a look at two opposite opinions. One, that strict gun control laws should be enacted across the United States to enhance public safety. And two, that gun control laws are an infringement on constitutional rights and should be banned. But before we take a look at these opinions, let's start out with some basics about gun rights, gun control, and the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791. It states, quote, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, unquote. In recent years, heated debates have questioned just how far the Second Amendment stretches. Does it protect a private right of individuals to keep and bear arms? Or does it protect a right that can only be exercised through militia organizations like the National Guard? Public opinion appears to be split about the scope and extent of the Second Amendment. In 2020, 57% of Americans said they wanted firearm sales laws to be more strict than they are now. 9% reported wanting sales laws to be less strict. And about a third of Americans want the laws to remain the same. A Gallup poll found that 44% of Americans had a gun in their home. 63% of gun owners reported they owned a gun for protection. As of 2017, 51% of Americans said Congress should pass new laws in addition to current gun policies. 57% of Americans said passing new gun control laws could reduce the number of mass shootings overall. But what does gun control mean? Gun control refers to the policies and laws that prevent or restrict firearm possession or usage. It is frequently centered in political debates as a question in balancing individual liberties and public safety. Proponents of gun control suggest that limiting access will save lives and reduce crime. Opponents suggest that it will do the opposite, preventing law-abiding citizens from being able to defend themselves against armed individuals. Much of the opposition for gun control is led by the National Rifle Association, or NRA. The NRA represents more than 5 million members. Together with the gun industry, the NRA lobbies lawmakers to oppose gun control legislation. Interpretations of the Second Amendment have been widely debated over the past century. Up until the 1900s, many U.S. courts understood the Second Amendment as the right of states to keep militias and the right of individuals to keep firearms to serve in said militias. In 1939, the Supreme Court upheld that the Second Amendment didn't prohibit laws requiring gun registration because certain weapons didn't have a, quote, reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, unquote. 
Over the coming decades, gun control would continue to be debated across the U.S., including in the courts. In 2008, the Supreme Court recognized the individual right to use firearms outside of a militia context for the first time. This decision recognized traditionally lawful purposes, including self-defense, in the home. Gun policies in the United States are frequently debated as mass shootings and homicides by firearm continue throughout the country. Questions are being asked on how to reduce crime and tragedy while also protecting constitutional rights and individual liberty. According to the Small Arms Survey, the United States has less than 5% of the world's population and 46% of the world's civilian-owned guns. It ranks number one in firearms per capita and also has the highest homicide-by-firearm rate among developed nations. As of 2012, the Constitutional Rights Foundation found that Americans own more than 200 million firearms, and each year about 640,000 violent crimes are committed with guns, primarily handguns. Gun policies being considered or debated include right to carry, which allows gun owners to carry concealed weapons, extending the number of places where firearms may be carried, requiring gun owners to register firearms and to hold a state firearm license, compelling manufacturers to include serial numbers on every bullet and install safety devices on guns, limiting gun purchases to one firearm a month per person, and banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Before we begin breaking down the arguments for and against gun control today, let's ground our discussion with some history about gun rights, gun control, and the Second Amendment in the United States. As I mentioned a few moments ago, the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791. This amendment stated, quote, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed, unquote. Eighty years later, in 1871, the NRA was founded by two Union Army veterans. Its primary goal was to, quote, promote and encourage rifle shooting on a scientific basis, unquote. In 1927, Congress passed the Non-Mailable Firearms Act. This legislation made it illegal to use U.S. mail to ship pistols, revolvers, and other concealable firearms. Exceptions were made for official purposes, including military and police use. The penalty for breaking this law included a fine of up to $1,000 and or up to two years in prison. In 1934, Congress passed the National Firearms Act. This is considered to be the first comprehensive federal gun control legislation. This law taxed the making and transfer of automatic fire guns, shotguns, and rifles. It was intended to curb crime and gang culture during Prohibition. This act imposed a $200 tax on machine guns, shotguns, and rifles with barrels shorter than 18 inches. This tax was considerably high. It is the equivalent of $3,947 when adjusted for 2021. The National Firearms Act was part of President Roosevelt's New Deal for Crime. It also required federal registration of machine guns, shotguns, and rifles with barrels shorter than 18 inches. Upon Congress passing this act, the then NRA president showed his support for gun control. He said, quote, I have never believed in the general practice of carrying weapons. I do not believe in the general promiscuous toting of guns. I think it should be sharply restricted and only under licenses, unquote. In 1938, Congress passed the Federal Firearms Act. This law required gun dealers, manufacturers, and importers to hold federal licenses. It also required sellers to keep customer records. It banned sales to some citizens, including those convicted of felonies. The next year, the Supreme Court upheld a federal ban on sawed-off shotguns. This decision implied that the Second Amendment protected state militias and individuals involved in these groups, but not private individual gun owners. In 1968, Congress passed the Gun Control Act. This legislation regulated interstate traffic of firearms. 
Support for this law was largely garnered after the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., and Senator Robert Kennedy. The Gun Control Act created new categories for firearm crimes. It also banned the sale of firearms and ammunition to certain groups, including those convicted of felonies. This law imposed federal jurisdiction over explosives, including bombs and grenades. Four years later, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF, is founded. This federal agency is responsible for enforcing laws related to alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives. In 1975, the NRA established the Institute for Legislative Action. This lobbying arm shifted the organization's focus from gun control to gun rights. The next year, Washington, D.C. banned residents from owning handguns. This decision would be called into question in a Supreme Court case in the 21st century. Back in 1986, Congress passed the Firearm Owners Protection Act. This act made amendments to the Gun Control Act of 1968, relaxing some gun control measures. This act limited federal inspection of sellers to once a year. It also repealed some record-keeping requirements for ammunition sales and barred the government from creating a national gun owner registry. This act allowed gun dealers, importers, and manufacturers to do business at temporary locations, like gun shows. This same year, Congress passed the Law Enforcement Officers Protection Act. This act banned manufacturing, importing, and selling ammunition that could penetrate a bulletproof vest. In 1990, Congress passed the Gun-Free School Zones Act. This act was passed as a response to the increasing gun violence in schools. It barred any unauthorized person from knowingly having a loaded or unsecured gun at or around a school. In 1991, 22 people were killed during a mass shooting in a Killeen, Texas restaurant. A 23rd victim died three days after the shooting due to her wounds. In 1993, Congress passed the Brady Handgun Violence Act. This act established the National Instant Crime Background Check System, or NICS. NICS is intended to be used by sellers before selling a gun to customers. This act requires federal background checks before a firearm can be purchased from a licensed dealer, manufacturer, or importer. In some states, private sellers are not subject to this requirement, meaning that they are not required to conduct background checks. The next year, Congress passed a federal assault weapons ban. It barred the manufacture, use, possession, and import of 19 types of assault weapons, including AK-47s and Uzis. It also banned certain large-capacity ammunition magazines. Measures enforced by this act only applied to weapons manufactured after the ban was passed. It expired a decade later in 2004. Back in 1999, two students killed 12 classmates and a teacher before committing suicide at Columbine High School. More than 20 others were injured during this attack. In 2005, Congress passed the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. This law prohibited gun manufacturers and dealers from being named in civil lawsuits when crimes were committed using their products. Two years later, Congress passed an act to strengthen NICS by increasing the number of records available in the system. This action mandated agencies to provide relevant information, including criminal history, mental health adjudications, and other records to the NICS databases. It was passed shortly after a tragic mass shooting at Virginia Tech University. Earlier that year, a student killed 27 other students and five teachers on campus before committing suicide. That same year in 2007, an armed security guard sued D.C. after the city rejected his application to keep a handgun in his Capitol Hill home. The U.S. Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the security guard. D.C. appealed the case to the Supreme Court. In 2008, the Supreme Court upheld the lower court ruling. It struck down the D.C. handgun ban, first instated in 1976, as unconstitutional. With this ruling, the court recognized the individual right to use firearms outside of the militia context for the first time. 
It ruled that Americans have a constitutional right to keep handguns and other commonly used firearms in their homes for self-defense. In 2010, the Supreme Court ruled that self-defense is a legal right. This ruling came after a retired custodian and others filed suits to challenge a 1982 Chicago law that banned new registration of handguns. Each suit alleged that the law violated Second Amendment rights protected in the Constitution. The Supreme Court ultimately agreed, ruling that the right to possess and carry weapons was protected by the Second Amendment. In 2012, 20 children and 7 adults died in a mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. The children who were killed were between 6 and 7 years old. This same year, 12 people were killed and 70 were wounded during a mass shooting at a movie theater in Colorado. The shooter stormed the cinema while wearing body armor, releasing tear gas and shooting more than 80 people. In 2016, 49 people were killed and 58 more were injured during a mass shooting in Orlando, Florida. A heavily armed man attacked revelers inside Pulse, a gay nightclub. The attacker was killed in a gun battle with the police. He had pledged allegiance to ISIL, which later claimed responsibility for the attack. In 2017, President Trump signed H.J. Resolution 40. This joint resolution stated that the Social Security Administration was no longer to submit pertinent information about people with mental illnesses to NICS. This action essentially reversed the Improvement Act passed a decade earlier. This same year, 58 people were killed and hundreds more were injured during a mass shooting in Las Vegas. The shooter attacked concert attendees at a country music festival at the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino. Also in 2017, 26 people were killed during a Sunday morning church service in Texas. 20 other people were injured during this attack. The youngest person killed was a toddler, just 17 months old. In 2018, a former student killed 17 students and teachers while injuring more than a dozen more in Parkland, Florida. This mass shooting led to the March for Our Lives, a pro-gun control movement, and subsequent protests nationwide that year. Which brings us to today. As of February 2020, more than 2,500 children 18 and younger have been killed with guns since the Parkland mass shooting two years earlier. This number excludes most suicides, those killed in police-involved shootings, and those who were killed while fatally wounding someone else. The Trace is a nonprofit newsroom focused on investigating gun violence in America. It estimates that the deaths of nearly 2,000 school-aged children are missing from this number. They say that since many incidents don't make the news, it's difficult to assess how many victims there truly are. Data has shown that there have been 229 U.S. school shootings since the mass shooting at Columbine in 1999. 304 people have died in these shootings, which includes some perpetrators, and 485 people have been injured. The continued rise of school shootings in the U.S. over the past two decades have led to extensive debates on gun control and policies. The American public appears largely split on many questions about gun reform. In a 2021 Gallup poll, 42% of Americans report being satisfied with national gun policy. 56% report being dissatisfied with these same policies. Of those Americans who say they are dissatisfied with national gun policies, 41% want stricter gun laws, while 8% want less strict policies. As of recording this, the Gun Violence Archive reports 6,994 gun violence deaths have been recorded this year. This includes 3,034 homicides, murders, unintentional shootings, or defensive use shootings, and 3,960 deaths by suicide. The Gun Violence Archive also reports 5,272 injuries this year, including 71 mass shootings and three mass murders. Mass shootings have been defined by the Gun Violence Archive as any incident where at least four people are shot, excluding the shooter. When faced with the tragedy of gun violence, many Americans are looking for ways to reform or enforce gun policy legislation. 
As of 2018, 92% of Americans support requiring background checks for all gun sales to prevent mass shootings at schools. 68% supporting raising the legal age of purchasing certain firearms from 18 to 21. 56% support banning semi-automatic weapons like the AR-15. 89% of Americans believe that background checks would be somewhat or very effective in preventing mass shootings at schools. 56% of Americans say that raising the legal age of purchasing certain firearms would be effective. And nearly two-thirds of Americans report banning AR-15s would be somewhat or very effective in preventing mass shootings at schools. In 2019, almost half of Americans reported being either somewhat or very worried that they or a family member would be a victim in a mass shooting. Mass shootings rose nearly 50% in 2020 from the previous year. Experts have attributed this jump to side effects from the COVID-19 pandemic, including high levels of unemployment and violent protests. In 2020, the U.S. reported 611 mass shooting events. These shootings resulted in 513 deaths and more than 2,500 injuries. This is 194 more shootings than the year before. More than two-thirds of Americans blame easy access to guns as a factor in mass shootings, either a great deal or a fair amount. 48% blame violence in movies, video games, and music. Nearly 8 in 10 Americans blame the spread of extremist views on the internet. And 83% blame failures in mental health treatment and care. Public opinion about semi-automatic weapons, also known as assault rifles, appears to be split. 47% of Americans say they support an assault rifle ban, which would make it illegal to manufacture, sell, or possess these weapons. 51% of Americans are against this proposed ban. When faced with the risk of mass shootings, 29% of Americans have purchased or considered purchasing a gun or another weapon. Almost 3 in 10 Americans have avoided or considered avoiding going to events with large crowds. And about 20% have avoided or considered avoiding going public places, like churches or restaurants. 2020 also saw a surge in record gun sales. According to the FBI, the agency performed almost 40 million background checks for gun purchases last year. This number is up 40% from 2019. USA Today reports that these gun purchases, quote, came at a time of heightened concerns about both public safety and anti-police sentiments, as well as warnings of violence from former President Donald Trump, unquote. In 2019, four in five Americans reported being at least a little worried about the availability of guns. 41% reported being worried a great deal about their availability. Last year, 42% of Americans reported having a gun in their home. More than two-thirds of Americans cite personal safety or protection for why they own a gun. More than half said they owned one for hunting, recreation, or sport purposes. There are currently more than 393 million firearms in the United States among the country's approximately 328 million residents. This is estimated to be about 120.5 firearms per 100 residents. This is more than five times as many firearms as the country with the second highest number. India has approximately 71 million firearms among its 1.3 billion residents. In today's episode, we will be taking a look at the gun control debate from two opposing views. First, we will take a look at an argument in support of gun control legislation. Supporters say that gun control laws will reduce crime, deaths, and gun violence overall. Then we will take a look at the argument against gun control legislation. Proponents say that gun control laws infringe on individual liberties, making it more difficult for law-abiding citizens to defend themselves and their loved ones. But before we begin, let's take a quick break. And we're back. 
Support for more strict gun control laws is on the rise. In September 2019, the Pew Research Center found that 60% of Americans support more strict gun laws. This is up eight points from two years earlier. On the other hand, the number of people who say gun laws should be less strict dropped to 11% in 2019. As with many issues, the support for gun control appears divided along party lines. 86% of Democrats and liberal-leaning independents favor more strict gun control legislation. On the other hand, 31% of Republicans and conservative-leaning independents say the same. The number of Democrats who support more strict gun laws has risen more than 11% since 2017. Meanwhile, the number of Republicans who support the same measures has risen 7%. But some gun control policies have similar levels of support across party lines. 91% of Democrats and liberal-leaning independents and 92% of Republicans and conservative-leaning independents favor barring people with mental illnesses from purchasing guns. 93% of Democrats and 82% of Republicans favor making private gun sales and gun show sales subject to background checks. For those who support more strict gun control measures, they cite three main reasons as major benefits for these policies. 1. Strengthening gun control laws would reduce gun violence and gun deaths overall. 2. The Second Amendment is not an unlimited right to own guns. And 3. Banning certain guns and ammunition would reduce the number of mass shootings overall. Let's take a look at each of these reasons one by one. First, proponents say that strengthening gun control laws would reduce gun violence and gun deaths overall. Between 1999 and 2016, there were more than 213,000 homicides by firearm in the United States. Guns were used in a majority of the deaths by homicide, more than two-thirds of all homicides. Firearms were also used in more than half of all suicides, 51.8%. In 2018, a New England Journal of Medicine study found that firearms were responsible for 15% of all child deaths. It was the second leading cause of all child deaths behind motor vehicle crashes. Proponents say that by strengthening gun control laws, there is potential to reduce gun deaths overall. The American Journal of Public Health found that, quote, legal purchase of a handgun appears to be associated with a long-lasting increased risk of violent death, unquote. Supporters of gun control laws say that strengthening federal universal background checks could reduce firearm deaths. In 2016, researchers found that implementing universal background checks could reduce firearm deaths by 56.9%. They also found that background checks for ammunition purchases could reduce deaths by 80.7%, and gun ID requirements could reduce deaths by 82.5%. Federal background checks are required by law under the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, which was passed in 1993. In 2014, a study found that this act stopped about 2.1 million gun purchases between 1994 and 2014. This is an average of 343 purchases a day. Researchers found that the Brady Act blocked 1 million people with felonies, 291,000 domestic abusers, and 118,000 fugitives from purchasing firearms. Supporters say that while this act has stopped many potential purchases, there have been failures when reporting felons to the federal database. In November 2017, an active shooter entered a Texas church and killed 26 people. Later, it was discovered that the Air Force failed to report the shooter and dozens of other service members with serious convictions to the Federal Gun Background Database. Proponents say that if the shooter had been reported, he would have been blocked from purchasing a gun due to his domestic violence conviction. Studies have found that the Air Force failed to report 14% of convictions. It also found that the Army failed to report 41% and the Navy failed to report 36% of convictions. 
Additionally, supporters of more strict gun laws say that the Department of Justice purged thousands of convicted felons off the NICS database after a key definition change. This change made, quote, fugitive from justice, unquote, apply to only criminals who cross state lines, a move that released tens of thousands of people off the no-purchase list. Despite the background check laws that are currently in place, supporters of more strict gun control say that there are deadly loopholes that need to be closed. The Giffords Law Center is an organization focused on preventing gun violence. It reports that a loophole currently allows unlicensed sellers to sell guns without performing any background checks whatsoever. Quote, With this loophole, guns easily find their ways into the hands of illegal buyers and gun traffickers, dramatically increasing the likelihood of gun homicides and suicides. Unquote. Researchers found that 45% of online gun buyers purchased a firearm without a background check in the last two years. Other research suggests that nearly a quarter of all gun owners acquired their most recent firearm without a background check, no matter how they purchased it. Because of this loophole for private and unlicensed sellers, proponents say that people who are ineligible for gun ownership, including those convicted of domestic violence or other violent crimes, can easily buy guns without background checks in most states. And the consequences of these loopholes can be deadly. For example, a man in Texas killed seven people and wounded 25 others in 2019. The shooter had previously failed a criminal background check while trying to purchase a gun from a licensed dealer. Supporters of more strict gun control say that loopholes in the current system allowed him to bypass the background check on his second attempt, purchasing a semi-automatic rifle from a private seller who wasn't legally compelled to run background checks. Proponents say there are numerous other examples of incidents like this one in the recent years as well. Consider this case from 2016, where a man killed his ex-girlfriend and their two children with a gun purchased from an unlicensed seller without a background check. He was legally barred from owning a firearm due to domestic violence charges. Or in 2014, when a West Virginia man killed four people, including his ex-girlfriend, using a gun he purchased without a background check. He was legally prohibited from owning guns due to multiple felony convictions. Proponents say that universal background checks impose almost no burden on law-abiding gun purchasers. Research has found that in more than 90% of cases, firearm background checks in the NICS system are fast. The average processing time takes less than two minutes. Additionally, supporters say that these results are accurate. Data from the FBI suggests that NICS background checks are accurate approximately 99.3 to 99.8% of the time. Supporters suggest that universal background checks are essential to keeping guns out of the hands of people who are seeking to do harm. Improvements to the existing background check system, including closing loopholes, will increase safety for all Americans. Proponents say that strengthening the enforcement of background checks can lower gun-related suicides and murders. A two-year study published in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine found that background checks conducted on the local level resulted in a 27% lower rate of gun-related suicides. It also found a 22% lower rate of gun-related homicides. Supporters say that these drops suggest that by giving law enforcement agencies more information, it can help officers keep guns out of the hands of people who want to harm others or themselves. The Constitutional Rights Foundation is a nonprofit education organization. They say some supporters propose requiring gun owners to register firearms and to hold a state firearms license. Proponents suggest that just as states register cars and licenses for people who drive, the state should also license gun owners and register guns. They say it will keep guns out of the wrong hands. For example, consider the Missouri Permit to Purchase Law. This law required citizens to get a permit from local law enforcement before purchasing a gun. After Missouri repealed this law in August 2007, firearm homicides rose up to 63% per year in the next four years. During the same year that Missouri repealed the Permit to Purchase Law, the state legislature passed a stand-your-ground law. 
Stand Your Ground laws are popular among gun rights activists because they promote individual liberty, granting additional protections for civilians using firearms in self-defense instances. Supporters of strengthening gun control laws point out that Stand Your Ground laws are associated with an increase of firearm homicides overall. On the other hand, gun licensing laws are associated with a 14% decrease in firearm homicides. Similar success with permit-to-purchase laws was found in Connecticut. In 1995, the state passed this law and saw a 40% drop in firearm homicides over the next decade. During the same time, the rate of non-firearm homicides remained stable, suggesting the permit-to-purchase laws prevented gun deaths. Proponents point to both of these cases as examples in how requiring firearm permits could reduce gun-related homicides. When paired with universal background checks that are sans loopholes, the number of gun-related deaths could lower overall. Second, supporters of strengthening gun control laws say that the Second Amendment is not an unlimited right to own guns. In 2008, the Supreme Court ruled in the case District of Columbia et al. v. Heller. As we discussed earlier in this episode, this case struck down the D.C. handgun ban first instated in 1976, saying it was unconstitutional. With this ruling, the court recognized the individual right to use firearms outside of the militia context for the first time. It ruled that Americans have a constitutional right to keep handguns and other commonly used firearms in their homes for self-defense. In the majority opinion of this ruling, Justice Antonin Scalia wrote, quote, Like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms, unquote. In short, Justice Scalia says that while Americans are allowed to have guns for self-defense, this right is not without its limits. It is not, essentially, a free pass to purchase or possess an unlimited number or type of firearms. Supporters say that the Second Amendment and its limitations were further decided in 2016. In June 2016, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the general public is not protected by the Second Amendment to carry concealed weapons. This decision upheld a California law that requires permits and, quote, good cause, unquote, for holding a concealed carry license in the state. In 2018, a study found that 91% of court cases that alleged the government violated Second Amendment protections failed between the 2008 Supreme Court decision and February 2016. Federal laws currently prohibit civilians from importing firearms unless they are authorized by the Attorney General. The Attorney General must say that the firearm being imported is either suitable or adaptable for sporting purposes. Federal laws also bar civilians from assembling a version of semi-automatic rifles or shotguns from imported parts that is identical to firearms currently banned from importation. These laws are intended to limit the style of weapons available to civilians. Supporters say that these laws are well within the bounds of the Second Amendment. They also say that these limitations protect public safety, citing that there is no need for automatic or semi-automatic weapons in the United States. However, proponents say that there are still loopholes to these requirements that need to be closed. In 1998, the ATF determined that semi-automatic rifles capable of using high-capacity magazines were not recognized as suitable for or adaptable to sporting purposes. Thus, according to federal law, they were banned from being imported. In the decade since, a report found that these measures have not been aggressively enforced. Proponents point to a 2011 congressional report that found, quote, Since the Clinton administration's efforts, the Gun Control Act of 1968's prohibition against non-sporting firearms has not been aggressively enforced, and many military-style non-sporting rifles have flowed into the United States civilian market, unquote. 
Third, supporters of strengthening gun control laws say that banning certain guns and ammunition would reduce the number of mass shootings. There are two categories of assault rifles, semi-automatic and automatic rifles. Many automatic rifles are colloquially called machine guns. The transfer of machine guns was first taxed in 1934 to discourage their use. About 50 years later, the transfer and possession of machine guns was banned for all civilians except for those who owned one prior to May 1986. Today, the ATF tracks ownership and transfer of all machine guns in the United States. On the other hand, semi-automatic rifles are legal in nearly all states across the country. Some of these firearms were banned nationwide between 1994 and 2004 under the Federal Assault Rifle Ban, but this law expired and has not been reinstated. These weapons include assault rifles, a class of semi-automatic firearms designed to kill or injure quickly and efficiently. The Giffords Law Center says, quote, Assault weapons are designed for the battlefield and pose a serious public safety risk, making it easier for shooters to kill more people more quickly, unquote. Research shows that there are twice as many injuries and deaths when assailants are equipped with an assault rifle rather than a handgun or a standard rifle. Proponents say that wounds caused by assault weapons are more severe and lethal than wounds by other firearms. When paired with high-capacity magazines, they allege that assault weapons can be used to injure more people in a shorter period of time. When looking at public mass shootings that led to four or more deaths, researchers found that more than 85% of these deaths were caused by assault rifles. Proponents say that reinstating a federal assault weapons ban would be effective in curbing mass shootings and gun deaths. After the federal ban was adopted in 1994, the number of assault weapons used in crimes declined by at least a third. In the 10-year period when the ban was active, mass shooting fatalities were 70% less likely when compared to decades before and after the ban. Proponents say that if the assault weapons ban had remained active, 314 of the 448 mass shootings that have occurred in the decades before and after the ban would have been prevented. Seven states in the District of Columbia currently ban assault weapons. These states are California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York. Additionally, while Minnesota and Virginia do not ban assault weapons, they do regulate the sale and possession. Every Town for Gun Safety is a nonprofit organization that advocates for gun control. It reports that assault weapons cause 32% of deaths and 82% of injuries in mass shooting incidents between 2009 and 2018. Proponents say that because automatic weapons have four times the muzzle velocity of a handgun round, these weapons are more dangerous than a standard handgun. They allege that this greater strength means that assault weapons inflict greater damage on the human body and are thus more deadly than other firearms. Supporters of increased gun control legislation say that high-capacity magazines should also be banned. Mother Jones reports that high-capacity magazines were used in at least half of mass shootings between 1982 and 2012. High-capacity magazines are detachable ammunition devices that hold more rounds than a typical magazine. These devices allow shooters to fire numerous rounds without having to reload their gun. Research shows that when high-capacity magazines were used, the fatality rate in mass shootings rose 63%. Additionally, the injury rate in these shootings rose more than 150%. In example, supporters of strict gun control laws point to cases like the mass shooting at the movie theater in Colorado in 2012. Inside the cinema, the active shooter used both 40 and 100 round high-capacity magazines to shoot more than 80 people. In a Tucson, Arizona mass shooting in 2011, an active shooter emptied a 33-round magazine in 30 seconds. This action killed six people and injured 13 more, including U.S. Representative Gabby Giffords. Dave Chipman is a former ATF agent. He says that high-capacity magazines, quote, turn a killer into a killing machine, unquote. 
Dave says that while banning high-capacity magazines won't prevent crime completely, it may reduce the number of people who die when they occur. And a majority of Americans appear to agree. According to a 2019 NPR poll, 65% of Americans say banning high-capacity magazines would reduce gun violence. High-capacity magazines have been used in mass shootings since the 1980s. In 1984, an active shooter killed 21 people in California when he shot more than 200 rounds in a matter of minutes. In 1997, a gunman fired nearly 150 shots in Orange, California using an AK-47 with a 30-round magazine. This event happened three years after the Federal Assault Weapons Ban. The 1994 Federal Assault Weapons Ban limited magazines to 10 rounds. This capacity was generally accepted by both law enforcement experts and policymakers. A decade later, the ban expired, making high-capacity magazines legal once again. Eight states and the District of Columbia currently ban high-capacity magazines. These states are California, Colorado, Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and Vermont. Supporters say that these bans are a way of limiting gun violence and fatalities. The Giffords Law Center reports that large-capacity magazines have been used in all 10 of the deadliest mass shootings in the last decade. Quote, Large-capacity magazines significantly increase a shooter's ability to injure and kill large numbers of people quickly because they enable the individual to fire repeatedly without needing to reload, unquote. Supporters of more strict gun control laws say that when shooters have access to high-capacity magazines, twice as many people died than in instances without these devices. And in other cases of crime, data appears to back up this claim. Firearms paired with high-capacity magazines are estimated to account for between 22 and 36% of guns used in crimes across the country. The Giffords Law Center also suggests that nearly 40% of guns used in serious violent crimes, including the murder of law enforcement officers, have high-capacity magazines. Proponents say that a growing body of research supports banning high-capacity magazines. The recovery of guns with these devices used in crimes have increased up to 112% in major U.S. cities and up to 33% nationwide after the 1994 assault weapons ban expired. In comparison, researchers found that while the ban was in effect, the number of high-fatality shootings fell by more than a third, and the number of people who died in such shootings fell by 43%. After the ban expired in 2004, high-fatality mass shootings rose 183%. The number of victims who died during those events rose 239%. Proponents say that by banning high-capacity magazines and automatic weapons, the number of mass shootings and gun deaths would fall overall. They say the evidence is clear, and it is time to act. For instance, consider this example in Virginia. In Virginia, proponents say that the 1994 ban is associated with a significant drop in the number of crime guns paired with high-capacity magazines. This number dropped to an all-time low of 10% in 2004. After the ban expired, however, proponents say that the number increased almost immediately. By 2010, the number of crime guns paired with high-capacity magazines rose to 22%. To recap, proponents say that more strict gun control policies would reduce gun violence and gun deaths overall. They say that enacting strict legislation, like adherence to background check protocols and firearm registration, would reduce crime and save lives. Supporters also say that more strict gun control is needed because the Second Amendment is not an unlimited right to own guns. Other proponents say that banning certain guns and ammunition would reduce the number of mass shootings overall. After the break, we'll take a look at the other side of this argument, the opinion against gun control legislation. Those who are against gun control legislation say it will infringe on individual liberties, making it more difficult for law-abiding citizens to defend themselves and their loved ones. But first, let's take that break. 
And we're back. According to the Pew Research Center, 30% of Americans personally own a gun. An additional 11% say that while they do not own a gun, they live with someone who does. Of those Americans who own a gun, about two-thirds say they own more than one firearm. 29% of Americans report owning five or more, and nearly three-quarters of gun owners own a handgun or a pistol, while 62% own a rifle and just over half own a shotgun. Gun ownership is largely ingrained in American society. Among all Americans, those who do and do not own guns, almost half grew up in a household with firearms. 59% reporting having at least some friends who own guns. And nearly three-quarters of Americans have shot a gun at least once in their life. Among those who own guns, 73% report that they could never see themselves not owning a firearm. The reasons for why gun owners choose to own firearms varies. The majority of gun owners say that they own firearms for protection. Others say they own guns for hunting, sport shooting, gun collecting, or their job. Men and women gun owners are about equal in saying that they own guns for protection. 65% of men and 71% of women say it is a major reason for why they own a firearm. However, 27% of women say that protection is the only reason they own a gun. On the other hand, only 8% of men agreed with this same statement. Some gun owners believe that all gun control policies are unconstitutional. They believe there should be no compromise on gun rights. Other gun owners believe that current levels of gun control are sufficient. They say instead of adding additional measures, the government should focus on enforcing the measures already in place. Still others say that gun ownership, rather than gun control, is the solution to many ills in society today. By lessening gun control measures and securing individual liberties, they say it would benefit communities and individuals across the country with policies like right to carry and stand your ground. Despite the varying end goals for gun rights activists, all of these groups agree that more strict gun control is not the answer. To make their argument, they often cite the following three reasons. One, gun control laws do not deter crime, but instead, gun ownership deters crime. Two, the Second Amendment protects individual gun ownership, and thus, gun control is unconstitutional. And three, gun control laws infringe on individual liberties, including the rights for self-defense and personal safety. Let's take a look at each of these one by one. First, proponents say that gun control laws do not deter crime. Instead, they say that gun ownership deters crime. Some research has found that the states with the largest increases in gun ownership have also seen the largest drops in violent crime. Dr. John Lott Jr. is the author of More Guns, Less Crime, Understanding Crime and Gun Control Laws. He writes, quote, The effect on shall-issue laws on crimes where two or more people were killed has been dramatic. When states passed these laws, the number of multiple victim shootings declined by 84%. Deaths from these shootings plummeted on average by 90% and injuries by 82%, unquote. Shall issue laws mean that gun owners are required to carry a license to have a concealed firearm. As long as a gun owner passes basic requirements, the government or issuing authority grants the owner a concealed carry permit. On the other hand, right-to-carry states allow gun owners to carry concealed firearms without a permit or with a permit granted by a shall issue policy. The NRA ILA is the NRA's lobbying arm. It says 16 states currently allow citizens to carry concealed firearms for lawful purposes, such as self-defense, without a permit. 25 states and D.C. grant concealed carry permits for law-abiding citizens who pass specified requirements, and one additional state grants permits with some discretion. The remaining eight states have laws that grant the government complete discretion of concealed carry permits. The NRA ILA states that discretion is often used to deny permits to citizens. Proponents suggest that right-to-carry laws make a community more safe, and banning guns completely is not the answer. 
Following a mass shooting in the UK in 1997, the government passed a strict gun control law banning citizens from owning almost all handguns. More than 162,000 firearms were returned to officials by law-abiding citizens. But 2007 data shows that this didn't reduce the amount of gun-related crime in the UK. Instead, gun-related crime nearly doubled since the ban was enacted. John Stossel is a libertarian commentator. He wrote an op-ed for ABC News that said more strict gun control could result in more gun crime, as counterintuitive as that sounds. He writes, quote, Criminals don't obey the law. Strict gun laws like the ban in Britain probably only affect the actions of people who wouldn't commit crimes in the first place, unquote. As of 2007, British officials estimated that there were more than 250,000 illegal firearms still in the country. John writes, quote, Without the fear of retaliation from victims who might be packing heat, criminals in possession of these weapons now have a much easier job, and the incidence of gun-related crime has risen. As the saying goes, if guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns, unquote. If guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns is a saying often cited by proponents against strict gun control. Supporters suggest that more guns in the hands of law-abiding citizens can stop crimes rather than make more of them. Some studies show that right-to-carry laws reduce violent crime nationwide. Dr. Lott analyzed FBI crime data in 2000 and found that implementing concealed carry protections reduced homicide rates by 8.5%. He also found that it deterred rape and sexual assault by 5%, aggravated assault by 7%, and robbery by 3%. Dr. Lott projected that as many as 1,570 murders and 60,000 aggravated assaults could have been prevented between 1977 and 1992 if concealed carry had been protected nationwide during those 15 years. As for more recent data, the Heritage Foundation found that between 2007 and 2015, homicide rates dropped 16% and violent crime rates dropped 18%. In the same time period, concealed carry permits grew 190%. Proponents say that this drop indicates a link between increased concealed carry permits and falling crime rates. Quote, each percentage point increase in rates of permit holding is associated with a roughly 2.5% drop in the murder rate, unquote. Supporters say that gun owners with concealed carry permits often act as the good guy with a gun. In fact, they say these gun owners have been credited with saving numerous lives in the face of violent crimes. For example, a South Carolina man stopped a mass shooting in a local nightclub by using his permitted weapon on an active shooter. The shooter shot and injured three people before a concealed carry permit holder disabled him, striking the shooter in the leg. Advocates suggest that the permit holder stopped a shooting before it turned more violent, or deadly. Similar Good Samaritan incidents have been reported across the country, including in Florida, Texas, Ohio, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Oregon, and Tennessee. Right-to-carry laws gained popularity in the 1980s and 90s. In 1987, Florida enacted a shell-issue law. Some believed that crime rates would rise, but proponents say that Florida's murder rate decreased 23% within five years. In that same time period, the nationwide homicide rate rose 9%. In the 1990s, two researchers analyzed National Crime Victimization Survey data. They concluded, quote, Robbery and assault victims who used a gun to resist were less likely to be attacked or to suffer an injury than those who used any other methods of self-protection or those who did not resist at all, unquote. A study by the Department of Justice that same decade found that 34% of criminals were deterred by an armed victim. 40% reported not committing a crime if they believed the potential victim was armed. Research published in 2015 suggests that right-to-carry states where no permit is required have lower violent crime rates. Researchers found that homicide rates were 33% lower in states that did not require a concealed carry permit. 
violent crime rates were 32% lower. As for states that did require permits, there appears to be a correlation between high permit numbers and lower violent crime rates. More than 16 million people have concealed carry permits across the United States. Proponents say that right to carry is essential because self-defense is a fundamental right. While law enforcement provides protection for civilians, they are not always available instantly when a crime occurs. Supporters suggest that carrying a firearm can help keep the gun owner and other bystanders safe. A 2014 Pew Research Center study found that a majority of Americans report gun ownership protects people from crime, 57%. Support for gun ownership as a crime deterrent appears to be growing among multiple demographic groups, including men and women, white and black citizens, and Republicans, independents, and moderate Democrats. Second, proponents say that the Second Amendment protects individual gun ownership and thus gun control is unconstitutional. As we discussed at the start of this episode, the Second Amendment reads, quote, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, unquote. Supporters of gun owners' rights say that gun ownership is an American tradition older than the country itself. They say that this right is entirely protected by the Second Amendment, and any gun control laws that infringe upon this right are unconstitutional. Many proponents cite two Supreme Court cases when supporting this argument. In 2008, the Supreme Court ruled that civilians are protected in their right to possess and to use a firearm for lawful purposes, including self-defense. This is defined as an individual right, one that exists outside service in a militia. Two years later, the Supreme Court ruled once again that the Second Amendment protected individual gun ownership. In McDonald v. The City of Chicago, Justice Samuel Alito wrote that the right to self-defense was integral to the conception of ordered liberty. He wrote, quote, Like other provisions in the Bill of Rights setting out such fundamental protections, it must be applied to limit not only the federal power, but also that of state and local governments, unquote. Both of these rulings declared handgun bans unconstitutional, the first in Washington, D.C., and the second in Chicago. Proponents say that it is clear that the Second Amendment grants the right to bear arms, and this right cannot be limited by federal, state, or local governments. The Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank. It says that gun rights are fundamental to a free society, which ultimately depends on personal responsibility. Researchers allege that existing gun control laws do not correlate with decreased violence, but instead limit the ability of law-abiding citizens to defend themselves and their loved ones. In the case of mass shootings, they say that these events are deplorable and they are tragedies, but that American policymakers should not rush to judgment and make laws that violate individual liberties. The Heritage Foundation says, quote, Federal, state, and local governments have a constitutional obligation to not restrict Second Amendment rights unreasonably by making it unduly expensive or burdensome for ordinary Americans to purchase, own, carry, or use a firearm. Instead, it asserts that citizens have an inviolable right to defend themselves, their loved ones, and their property. Research suggests that armed citizens are less likely to be injured by an attacker. Proponents say that the number of defensive gun uses is projected as high as 2.5 million times each year. Supporters also say that while gun ownership doubled by the end of the 20th century, there is less violent crime, including homicide by firearm, today than there was 60 years ago. Some say that these statistics suggest how the Second Amendment allows gun owners to maintain autonomy while caring for themselves and their families. Lawrence Hunter is the chairman of Revolution PAC, an organization that supports gun rights. He says, quote, The founders understood that the right to own and bear arms is as fundamental and as essential to maintaining liberty as are the rights of free speech, a free press, freedom of religion, and other protections against government encroachments on liberty delineated in the Bill of Rights, unquote. 
Third, proponents say that gun control laws infringe on individual liberties, including the rights for self-defense and personal safety. While law enforcement is responsible for protecting their communities, police officers cannot be everywhere at once. A Pew Research Center study found that 61% of men believed that more strict gun control would, quote, make it more difficult for people to protect their homes and families, unquote. 56% of women agreed with this same statement. Many gun owners say that owning a firearm gives them a sense of security. For example, if a home invader breaks into their property, having a gun gives them a potential deterrent. 80% of women gun owners reported that firearm ownership made them feel safer. 79% of men agreed. The number of defensive gun uses across the country are widely underreported, but proponents suggest the number could be as high as 2.5 million times each year. Dr. Nelson Lund is a professor at George Mason University. He says, quote, The right to self-defense and to the means of defending oneself is a basic natural right that grows out of the right to life, unquote. By limiting gun owners' rights via gun control laws, he says it stops law-abiding citizens from being able to defend themselves and their families from violent criminals, rather than stopping the crime from taking place. For example, some proponents point to a 2013 study which found that nearly half of convicted felons admitted they avoided committing crimes when they knew a potential victim was armed. Other proponents suggest that using a gun is safer than other self-defense strategies as well. A 2013 CDC report found that using a gun in self-defense is linked with consistently lower injury rates when compared to those who use other self-defense strategies. Many supporters of less strict gun control policies cite stand-your-ground laws as an effective crime deterrent and protector of individual liberties. Stand-your-ground laws mean a person doesn't have to retreat from a situation before using deadly force as self-defense. This policy is not limited to any specific property, but instead covers entire jurisdictions or states where the law is in place. There are currently 35 states with stand-your-ground policies in place. In these states, a person is legally allowed to defend themselves, regardless of whether a jury concludes they may have safely avoided death or injury with another method. These states include the West, including Alaska, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Nevada, Utah, and Colorado. It also includes some of the Midwest and some of the Northeast, South Dakota, Iowa, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Missouri, Kansas, Pennsylvania, Vermont, and New Hampshire. Stand Your Ground States also includes most of the South. West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee, Kentucky, Oklahoma, and Texas. These laws stand in comparison to a duty-to-retreat law. A duty-to-retreat law means a person has to retreat from a threatening situation if they can do so safely. An effort to retreat must be made before acting in self-defense. If retreating is not possible, for example, if a person is cornered or pinned down, they are then legally authorized to use deadly force as self-defense. Some duty-to-retreat laws enact a castle doctrine, which provides limitations on the duty-to-retreat. A castle doctrine means a person doesn't have to retreat when using deadly force when acting in self-defense if they are in their own home or yard. Some states also extend this doctrine to cover a place of work or an occupied vehicle. There are currently 15 states with duty-to-retreat policies. These policies may include some exceptions or variations on the Castle Doctrine, as we discussed a moment ago. These 15 states with duty-to-retreat policies are Arkansas, Massachusetts, Maryland, Maine, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Ohio, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, North Dakota, Nebraska, and Wisconsin. While stand-your-ground laws have more wide guidelines for self-defense, there are still certain restrictions in place. 
For example, some states require that the threat of harm to be objectively reasonable and that the use of force is proportional to the threat being made. Other states require that the person who used self-defense be at their location lawfully and that they were not the instigator of the situation. Whether a person is in a duty to retreat or a stand-your-ground state, they may not use deadly force unless there is a reasonable belief that they are facing death, serious bodily injury, or serious crimes, such as rape or kidnapping. Proponents say that stand-your-ground laws give potential victims the right to protect themselves. Matt Harriman is the NRA Arkansas State Director. He says, quote, When crimes occur, victims have little time to decide the best course of action for survival. They should not be required to run away or face prosecution for defending themselves, unquote. Instead, he says that stand-your-ground measures are common sense. They allow gun owners to protect themselves and their loved ones. John Peixong was a senior strategist for former President George W. Bush. In 2013, he wrote an op-ed in the San Luis Obispo Tribune. He says, quote, Stand-your-ground laws simply extend castle doctrine protections out of the home and into any place individuals lawfully have a right to be, provided that they are not engaging in criminal activity, unquote. John writes that with these policies in mind, people are empowered to take action when defending themselves and their loved ones. In places where there is no such law, victims may be the ones facing criminal consequences. Consider this example of a woman who shoots an aggressor who attempted to sexually assault her. In duty to retreat states, she may be found criminally and or civilly liable if she didn't attempt an escape or if a jury found her circumstances didn't meet a specific threat threshold. Instead, John says cases like this are precisely why stand-your-ground states are necessary. He writes, quote, Wouldn't it be better to err on the side of the victims in these horrific cases? Far from being a shoot-first law, stand-your-ground gives the benefit of the doubt to the victim, unquote. Other proponents point out that stand-your-ground laws benefit people who live in rural communities where law enforcement is not as quickly available. Aaron Pilkington is a state representative in Arkansas. He says that for residents in rural areas, response times take longer because officers are responsible for covering a larger area. In cases of violent crime, every minute is critical. He says, quote, By the time the police or sheriff department can arrive, it could be too late for the crime victims living out in the more remote areas of our state, unquote. Proponents suggest that stand-your-ground laws provide more benefits than consequences. It removes ambiguity in criminal situations, such as duty to retreat and what constitutes a castle as relegated to the castle doctrine. Instead, supporters say that these laws empower individuals to protect themselves, often in a split second between life and death. To recap, proponents against strict gun control policies say that gun control laws do not deter crime. Instead, they say gun ownership deters crime. They cite statutes like right to carry as a way ordinary citizens can participate in keeping their communities more safe. Additionally, they say that the Second Amendment protects individual gun ownership, thus making gun control laws inherently unconstitutional. Proponents suggest that gun control laws infringe on individual liberties, including the rights for self-defense and personal safety. They say that legislation like stand-your-ground laws gives people more control when protecting themselves and their families. On the other hand, supporters of more strict gun control policies say that these policies would reduce gun violence and gun deaths overall. They say that enacting strict legislation like adherence to background check protocols and firearm registration would reduce crime and save lives. Supporters also say that more strict gun control is needed because the Second Amendment is not an unlimited right to own guns. Other proponents say that banning certain guns and ammunition will reduce the number of mass shootings and the number of gun violence deaths overall. But what do you think? Would gun control laws be effective in curbing gun violence? Or do they limit gun ownership from law-abiding citizens? 
Should assault rifles and high-capacity magazines be banned? Just how far does the Second Amendment stretch when protecting individual gun rights? Let me know your thoughts on these questions, or anything I talked about in this week's episode, by shooting me a text or leaving me a voicemail. You can reach We the Voters at 773-658-9492. You can also email me at wethevotersproject at gmail.com. A quick heads up, your stories and reactions may be used in an upcoming episode or another part of the We the Voters site. Also, let's stay in touch between episodes. I keep this conversation going on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at We the Voters Project, on Twitter at Hi We the Voters, and on Instagram at We the Voters. We the Voters is a project funded by people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please consider supporting this work with a one-time or a monthly donation. You can donate on patreon.com slash we the voters or via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. Shoot me an email or a text if you'd like to find out more. You can also support We the Voters without spending a dime. Please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or tell a friend about the show. Snap a screenshot of this episode and tag me on Instagram or Facebook. These are quick ways that can make a big impact in helping this project grow and reach more people. And honestly, thank you so much for considering supporting this project and sharing this work. It means the absolute world to me. Everything I talked about in this week's episode is linked in the show notes. You can find them on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. I'll be back here in your feed next Wednesday with another conversation about U.S. culture. But until then, I'm Emily Kate, and this was We the Voters. We the Voters.